I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wheelhouse DNA. That is the gift that people give you, is they give you this forever the rest of your life funny thought or feeling or love, whatever they give you. You get to just kind of have this well. And whenever I'm feeling sad, I'll just go into the well and I'll pull something out of the well and go, wow, I have a really deep well of funny and great people that are no longer here, but I can always pull something out of the well that will make me feel great about them again. And I think that's the, the homage that you give to those people is you honor them with what they gave you. From Wheelhouse DNA and Acast, this is Comfort Food, a show about life, loss, grief, celebration, and the meals that support us through it all. I'm your host, Kelly Rizzo. My guest today is someone very close to my heart. He's an actor, a comedian, a podcaster, an impressionist, and one of my late husband Bob's best friends. So excited to get into this conversation. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dave Coulier. Well, Dave, I am so, so happy to have you here. Not only am I just thrilled to have you be a part of Comfort Food, but to see you twice in one week has been such a treat. Yeah, I got to see you on our little podcast show, Full House Rewind. That was not really a little podcast show. That is quite a production. Well... We, we shoot it like a TV show, so we got five cameras, and we got, you know, stuff happening, and and we we trimmed the show back, actually, because I had puppets, I had Mr. Woodchuck, I had Comet the dog popping in through the window. It was like Pee-wee's Playhouse meets Full House, so, <laughs> so I was like, you know, the show has just expanded way too much, and it's gotten too far away from Full House, you know, being the central theme, so you did the show. We yeah. we We kind of really centralized the full house theme with our guests and made everybody more a part of it. So, uh, so I'm, I'm happy. It's, it's a fun show. It was so much fun. I had such a blast. I, I didn't really, you were a great guest. Oh, you were a really good because you. we've had some guests that, you know, got to kind of, you got to work a little, it's pulling teeth. Yeah. Well, I was very pleasantly surprised because, I mean, I didn't really know what to expect, whether it was, you know, a little bit more interactive like it was or whether it was just more of a, a chat. And I I mean, I, I got to read a script <laughs> with you. It was such, it was very surreal. It was such an interesting moment because I got to play DJ and Steph. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Danny, you were Danny. I'm and, always Danny. Every, yeah. every time, if there's a scene with Danny, I'm, I always play Danny. Well, I assume a lot of times you are Joey too, right? I'm okay. both sometimes, yes. I usually don't play the girls. Okay. I usually let the guests play the girls. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was very surreal, very fun, very interesting. And it's something that I think Bob would have been looking down being like, okay, this is really weird that you're doing this, Kelly, <laughs> that you're reading a Full House script, but okay, it's kind of adorable and I like it. You know what I mean? It's one of those, because you know, he had always, 
much more so than I think probably even you or John. He had a very complicated relationship with his full house relationship in terms of, you know, wanting to not be seen as such a family TV kind of guy. But then he reconciled that relationship much more recently. Yeah, he wanted to be funnier. And, you know, he kind of had to be the straight man on the show. And I would walk in and go, bop, bop, you know, and yeah. exit and get a laugh. And, you know, and then he had to have the scene with the girls where it was serious. And, you know, he was a dad. But I saw not so much a, a, a change or a transition with his character, but he came more to terms with it because he realized, okay, I'll try to be funny and be the dad at the same time. And I was like, Bob, you have three daughters. Like, this is perfect for you. You know, he's like, yeah, but, you know, Bob, he wanted to be yeah. funny. Right. You know, And what he didn't get was he was funny. Like, you yeah. guys were all really, really funny. And I just think maybe he didn't appreciate the type of funny that it was because he wanted to be his type of funny. And it was yeah. still really funny. It was just maybe to a more widespread audience. And maybe he just wanted to be a little bit more niche with his comedy. Well, of course he did, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would always describe people to Bob. I would say, you know, he's my, my filthy Jewish sister, you know, because he (laughs) loved that. I would introduce him like that. He go, Dave, why don't you introduce me? Oh, okay. This is my filthy Jewish sister, Bob. So he loved that. I'd always describe to people, I just, you know, they would talk about Bob and they're like, how does he get away with playing the dad when we've saw him in this in dirty work or this or that or something? I said, well, you know, Bob's always been triple R. And I said, that's the challenge for him, you know, is to put himself in an acting space where he's got to play the dad on a very G rated family sitcom. So, but I, I gave him a lot of credit. I gave Bob a lot of credit when he held true to his stand up roots. And even though he was the video guy and even though he was Danny Tanner, he would go back in clubs and he would stay true to his standup. So I gave him a lot of credit for that because it would have been very easy for him to just play, you know, the Danny Tanner character to the hill, you know, whereas me, I was just always a clean standup. And right. so I never had to really adjust very much, but he stood fast to, to his roots of, of who he was as a standup. And I always, Gave him a lot of props for that. Bob would always say, he's like, no, you don't understand Dave in real life, though. Dave <laughs> well, in real life is very different. Well, well, his, oh, yeah. his jokes, nobody oh. has jokes like Dave does. Well, and and it's because I, I grew up playing sports. You know, right. I've been in locker rooms my whole life. And the reason I became a stand-up is because when I'm sitting around with 20 guys and we're tying our skates, you've got a captive audience. Yep. And so I would do impressions and make my fellow hockey players laugh. And that's where I kind of you know, started to realize, hey, I'm pretty good. I can crack a room up. But it was um, locker room humor. And so I love locker room humor. But as a business and as a profession, I just never really went there. Well, I think, you know, I did date a hockey player for many years. So I know very well with that. You know, the <laughs> especially the world. specific type of humor that goes on in the hockey world is very different than I think any other sport. They were just so funny and yeah. had their own language. Own language. Everybody Especially has a because everyone's Canadian too. So Everybody has a nickname. And half of my family's from Canada. My mom's side is from Bathurst, New Brunswick. So, you know, and I played hockey as a kid. I was in Ontario half of my life. So 
I know that language very well. And hockey guys rip on, you just rip on each other, yeah. you know? And it's funny because during COVID, my wife, Mel, uh, Love during, her so much. Yeah. She's great, pretty great. Um, so during COVID, I wasn't seeing my buddies a whole lot. And so I would start just going, Hey, you know, she'd go, uh, you know, I have to take a shower and I'd be like, I'll say you better get in there now. And she's like, that's not very nice. So, and then, you know, it kept happening cause I had no release. I wasn't with my buddies doing that stuff. And finally she's like, you better get back playing. You, you need to like get some guy time. Just You like, need to be in a locker room. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So. Well, one thing I want to talk about and probably a lot of this conversation is so something that's very important and central to what I've been experiencing, especially these last couple years, is the relationship between comedy and grief. Because you were probably the person who knew Bob the longest out of everyone that I know. I mean, you guys grew up together and since you were 18 and he was like 21. Uh, I was 18, yeah, when I met Bob in a little comedy club in Detroit. And, uh, yeah. We hit it off instantly. We just made each other laugh. And um, I hadn't moved to L.A. yet. And he said, well, when you do, here's my number. And he wrote it down on a napkin. I have that napkin somewhere <gasps> in a scrapbook. Stop. And uh, it was oh a 213 God. number. And he gave me his number. And it just said Bob. <laughs> and I called him when I got to L.A. And he said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm just looking for apartments. I don't have an apartment yet. And he goes, oh, come on over. <laughs> and I went over. And uh, he had this little apartment in Palms, and uh, we just became friends. And then Gary Shandling came over, and uh, it was funny. It was just funniness that bonded us together. We were struggling. We had none of us had anything. We didn't have any money or anything. We were struggling, and uh, we just bonded because we thought we're really funny. <laughs> That's all and, we had was the belief that and we you were. were. Funny. We had this love of what we were doing and we, we thought, you know, when we went on stage, we thought I am the funniest guy in, on the planet right now. And you had to, you know, because of our group, our group was Bob and Gary Shandling and Howie Mandel, Jim Carrey, Dennis Miller, Louis Anderson, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And so you had to really believe in yourself. That's all we had. We just had this belief that, you know what, we're some really funny kids here and, uh, you know, we're going to make it. But we supported each other. It was that friendship, you know, during the down times and supporting each other during the times when, oh, I'm so glad, so happy you got this job or whatever, you know, it was because it was never like all of a sudden, boom, you're a star. It was like you had to go and work and toil away and find your stand-up and try and get noticed and then auditions. And so it was a real process. But that thing that held us all together was just an instant friendship. So it's kind of like a comedy fraternity? It was. It really was. And, um, you know, I was never, I came out, I had braces on my teeth that I paid for myself. Oh. Um, so <laughs> I was, you know, I was already a pilot. So I would rent planes at Santa Monica airport or Van Nuys airport. I would fly around during the day. 
The other comics were out partying till four in the morning. Not really Bob or, or Gary. We weren't big partiers. But a lot of the comics during that time, they used to call me Christian Shine Boy, you know, because I was Catholic and, oh, and everybody else is Jewish. And I'm this Catholic kid with braces on Aww. my teeth. And they called me Christian Shine Boy. Um, I had a little bit of a different lifestyle than a lot of the comics back then. Yeah. Well, before we get into the, uh, you know, comedy and how it can help get you through a lot of stuff, I'm going to bring in a little treat for you. Oh, boy. Because, you know, this is called comfort food. And I can't wait. And we make it a little easier to have, not that these are hard conversations, but just, you know, important conversations. But while we uh, eating some pizza... Who's the happiest guy in this <laughs> chair right now? Davy, Davy, Dave. Pizza. <laughs> Yay. Oh, man. Okay. So now tell me real quick why pizza? Like, has there been a specific time where pizza's really comforted you? Or well, does this take you back to a certain time? It does. It does. Uh, at the end of my street was a, um, a, a pizza place. It was a bakery called Detroit Italian Bakery. And it was right at the end of my street. So I would walk home from St. Isaac's Catholic School. And um, you could go at the back of the bakery. And they always had surplus um, rolls. And I would go, do you have any rolls? And they'd go, yeah, we got a couple. So I would get a couple rolls. Once in a great while, you'd get a slice of pizza. And my family was pizza crazy because you could feed your whole family oh, yeah. with, you know, a couple of pizzas, which was cheap. So every time... My dad had seven brothers and two sisters, big Catholic what? family. Yeah. And you would go to my aunt's or uncle's or my grandma's house and, you know, everybody had pizza. Well, this is mm. very, very comforting to me. I mean, this is like a, this is a solid, mm. this is a solid piece of pizza. That's some pretty good pie. So I want to know from you the kind of transition that you experienced over, let's say, from being a teenager and starting in comedy to when you guys realized that not only was this your career and what you did for a living, but also something that was going to help you get through difficult times in life. You and Bob even, and also John, (laughs) lost family members all at about the same time, Mm -hmm. multiple times. So you guys... You and Bob lost sisters at the same time. And John almost lost a sister at that time. Yeah. And then your mom's all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was tough. Um, I lost, well, Bob lost his sister Andy first. Mm-hmm. And that was a sudden thing. Then my sister Sharon got cancer and it was kind of a five-year process of her eventually passing away. So we, we kind of prepared for it, you know. So I didn't go through the same experience Bob went through of sudden death like that. So then my sister passed away during full house and, um, and then his sister gay passed away and it was gallows humor. You know, we would, Bob came up to me, he goes, Hey, you want to start a dead sister club? And it would make us laugh, but that's what comics do, you know, in times of great adversity or dark times, we'll joke our way out of it. Right. And we'll try and make other people around us laugh because it's just kind of, disintegrates that dark feeling for, for us anyway. And then Bob lost his sister gay and he came up to me and he goes, uh, well, 
looks like I just pulled ahead. <laughs> you know? so Two goes, to one. He goes, yeah, uh, yeah. And made me laugh, you know. And at Gay's funeral, Bob was waiting for me to show up because he wanted to have his buddy to play around with during dark times, right? So he runs, he sees me pull up in the parking lot and he runs out and I'm like, what's he doing? He ran over to me and I go, what's going on? He goes, come on, come on. I want to show you a dead body. Yeah. <laughs> it was, and it made me laugh. People just will shake their heads over that. But if you knew the inner workings of our relationship and the pain we went through, that was a coping mechanism for us. Yeah. For someone like me who had never really experienced loss to that level, I mean, grandparents, you know, mm -hmm. um, that when he would make jokes like that about, you know, oh, my dead sister this, or, you know, my dead mom that, you know, like when he would make jokes at mm -hmm. first, when we first met, I was like, oh my God, like you can't say those things. Right. And it, then it's taboo. Right. But then I was like, this is what he needed to do to get through it. And when you're, you know, that you losing both your sisters. So like his parents had to use that as a coping mechanism too. Right. Right. And like how do, how does one get through losing four out of their five kids? You know, like you have to find a way to be able to They were all laugh. funny. They were all funny. Bob's dad was hysterical. Yeah. And he, you could see where Bob got the sick humor from. It was Ben, his dad. And, uh, but Bob's parents treated me like a son and they all, they both, Bob's dad would call me, how are you, son? And he would Aww. kiss me and he would say, how, how are you doing? You know, with all this crazy world you guys are in now. And it was when we were starting to get some success, Ben would always kind of pull me aside and check in with me. And it was just kind of his way of saying, you know, I got your back, which was great because I didn't really have anybody out here. And to have that kind of fatherly figure like that, uh, Ben Saget, was really comforting. You know, it was really, it was really nice to kind of have him in my corner. Mike Binder's dad was the same way. Um, his dad, Bert, was the same way. And, and it was just like these guys, I felt like these guys really had my back. Because my dad didn't understand show business. He, he was right. a Chrysler guy. And, you know, he, he would tell people, yeah, he's out there in L.A. with all those crazy people doing something. It's like my dad. Yeah. <laughs> my dad never really got it, you know? I could go on with stories of my dad forever about how he didn't really understand what I was doing out here all those years. But but Ben and, ben and Dolly, you know, I, I, I went to more, I felt like I was Jewish because I went to more seders yeah. and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs than other people. I was like, what, am I the only one going to all these, you know? Yeah. Um, but I was really a part of their family. I know. I wish I met them. Yeah. Bob would always say, he's like, oh, I wish you got to you. meet them. That, and then that was the you. next thing he yeah. said. He goes, they would have loved you. Mm -hmm. So is there anything specific you remember that maybe Ben taught you or well, a funny joke was, or something that he would say? It, it was that nothing, everything is is open for fodder. There's nothing that's off limits. And, and that was kind of how I grew up anyway. But I was the kid that would be in the locker room that would, when there, none of the coaches or the parents were around, I'd be the kid that would say it. And comedians are always thinking it, and then you wait for the right timing to say it. And the comedian will say the thing that's in everybody's head. Right. So for me, 
being around those kinds of people that, that are like-minded thinkers, um, it just kind of opens up the world of possibilities to express yourself in a comedic way, whether it's through grief or whether it's your profession or, you know, and I didn't have that in my family. My family was funny, but in a very kind of subdued kind of way. Mm -hmm. Whereas Bob's dad was just kind of like, he'd come up to me and go, Dave, if I take my pants off, will you check me out? I I got something going on. I would be. Up. I would love to, Ben. I would absolutely do that for you. Well, come here. Come on over behind the couch. And he would just play with me like that. You know, it just sounds so much like. Well, that makes sense. That that's oh. where Bob came from. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Is there ever a time where you were realizing that anything you were going through at the moment was just too heavy, too dark, too sad? Where you're like, I can't even make a joke right now. My sister Sharon was wonderful. She was um, probably the sibling that I was closest with. Very, very funny, talented singer. It was her kind of, it's the same thing with Bob. You know, my sister, I get to carry those memories with me the rest of my life. And it was such a gift that like my sister gave me and Ben Saget gave me because we're talking about him right now. Yeah. And same thing with Bob is, wow, I get to have this luxury of driving along in my truck by myself somewhere. And I'll think of my sister and I'll just go, oh my gosh, that was so funny. Or Ben Saget said this to me and I'll get these little light bulb moments or Bob, I have to, you know, I have to remember that bit with Bob because it's so funny. Right. And that, that is the gift that people give you is they give you this forever the rest of your life, funny thought or feeling or love, whatever they give you, you get to just kind of have this well. And, and whenever I'm feeling sad, you know, I'll just go into the well and I'll pull something out of the well and go, wow, I have a really deep well of funny and great people that are no longer here, but I can always pull something out of the well that will make me feel great about them again. And I think that's the, the homage that you give to those people is you honor them with what they gave you. Yeah. And it's almost like maybe the funnier the person, the more you can joke about them after they're gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the one thing is that I take away from all of those people that I mentioned is that they would love that. Yeah. They would love me joking about them. So that's what I do. And that it, it's, and it's a catharsis for me too. Don't don't get me wrong. It's it's for me in a, in a very selfish way, but it also helps me keep them alive. I still cannot believe what you like. You had a one year period just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and you know you said that we could talk about this, but where you lost your best friend, someone, you know, over 40 plus years, your dad and your brother within what, one year? I lost nine people in a, in a 12 month span. The toughest one really, yeah. Yeah. It was friends back in Michigan and people that I knew, family members, cousins. Um, it was just kind of an avalanche of loss. And, uh, at one point I just kind of just like, 
you know, looked upward and went, okay, is this my time? Like, is this when I get bombarded? Like, just keep it coming because, you know, it's like shields are up now, you know? And so, um, the toughest one though was my brother committed suicide and I was the one who found him. That was a tough day. That was like the bottom. That was the lowest I have ever felt in my life. And my brother is the funniest person I know. He and I had bunk beds as kids. He taught me how to do impressions. Um, he did voices when we were young, and that's how I learned how to do voices. Oh. We used to sit on the front porch, and we used to call it narrating the neighborhood. And as people would go by, our neighbors, we would do their voices. And my brother was so good at it, and I would just laugh. Then we would go in our bunk beds at night, and we would rehash all those stories. And all he'd have to do is, like, Mr. Gat was our neighbor. You talk like this. How you doing? Gosh, I'll tell you, I'm a buffalo from way back. And my brother would, we'd just be falling asleep, and my brother would go, I'm a buffalo. (laughs) And I would start cracking up. And so we would launch into these routines that we had. And my dad would run into our room at like midnight, one in the morning. If I hear Mr. Gat or Mr. Hooper one more time, (laughs) both of you are getting grounded. So, you know, to have that connection with my brother, who I love so dearly, um, to, to go through that experience, he was living with my dad. He was taking care of my dad. And my dad called me um, in the morning and he said, hey, uh, um, are you coming over today? And I said, I'll be over later. And then my dad called me back at like three in the afternoon. And he said, my dad couldn't go down the stairs. And so uh, my dad said, hey, can you can you come and just check on Dan? He's been down in his room downstairs all day and I, he won't come up and blah, blah, blah. I said, sure, dad. Yeah, I'll take a ride over. Are you suspecting anything negative at that point? Like, is that something well, where you're like, my oh. brother had been po- bipolar. So, you know, there were some dark times that we had gone through with him, but nothing, nothing that drastic. Uh, you know, he never talked about like, oh, you know, I wish I wasn't here or anything like that. So you're not suspecting that. Well, I wasn't suspe- suspecting it. And then I felt it. At the closer I got to my dad's house, I just got this pit in my stomach and I thought something's wrong. This is, this is just not adding up today. And I went over there and all the doors were closed to the basement. And I, I yelled for my brother and I didn't hear anything. And I was like, dad, are you sure? Like you didn't leave and you just didn't hear him, you know? And then I saw all the doors were closed and the bottom door at the basement was closed. And, um, I slid the door open and there was a, you know, a little chair with my brother's wallet, his note and all of his information. And I just got that awful pit in my stomach and I yelled and I was afraid to look. And then I turned the corner and there he was and he had poisoned himself. And so I had to go upstairs and tell my dad, my dad said, is he okay? And I said, uh, just let me. And I went in the backyard. I didn't want to tell my dad cause it would have just crushed him. And I, I called my sister. I called Mel. They were there in 10 minutes. And I said, I, I think Dan has killed himself. He's gone. And they both screamed, both came over. I was 
in the backyard, called 911, and I said, there's been a suicide here. They said, what's the address? Gave them the address. They were there in five minutes, and I had to go in the living room, but I waited till Mel and my sister got there. And my dad said, what's going on with the fire trucks and the ambulance and this and that? And I had to tell my 90-year-old dad that my brother had killed himself. And he just fell apart. I, I just, I'd never seen my dad collapse like that. Because like with my sister, we expected it. We knew it was coming because she had had various types of cancer. But with this, it was just so devastating. And having to wait there and... I said to my sister, I said, I can't, because my brother, had. it was bizarre. He had covered himself with a sheet and was sitting upright in a chair and he didn't want any of us to see him, but he knew that I would be the one that my dad would call. And so he also knew that I would take care of everything because I kind of just do that naturally with my family. And so, um, you know, we had to sit there and I said to my sister, I said, I, I can't go identify him. I, I will, I will break. That will break me. And she said, I will go and do it. And I mean, you want to talk about the basement of your life. The, the, I mean, metaphorically, my brother taking his own life in the basement. That's where I was that day. I, I can't, I could never, I don't think I could ever feel that again you know, unless something happened to Mel. But, but that day, knowing that my brother chose that, but knowing him, it was easier for him to not live another day than it was to live a day. It was a real struggle for him. And, um, you know, I tried to help him through it. He wouldn't accept help. And then it just got to be to the point where it was easier to be gone. I understood that knowing my brother as I did, because we talked about life and, you know, where he was. Um, but it was never suicidal. It was never talk of that. It was, it was just, I'm so unhappy. And I would say, well, how can I help? You can come and live with us. You know, if dad's too much a burden, we'll, we'll do that. No, 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 I'm fine with dad. But it's just, he goes, I just, life's too hard. I, ca I can't do this. And I would try and encourage him like, move in with us, you know, just we'll, we'll do stuff together and this and that. But he was really walking down his own path at that point. It was kind of the path of no return for him where he had already made his choice. None of us saw it coming, but it was, it was the lowest point that I could ever humanly feel. So you didn't yeah. expect it, but you got it. You weren't shocked, but you didn't expect it. Yes. And it was only because I had to open myself, my dad felt like he was, how could he do this? You know, how could he, how could he take his own life? And I would talk to my dad and my dad kind of put the wall up. He didn't really want to cycle through anything other than good memories. It, for him to accept that of his child had killed himself was too much for my dad. And so I didn't want to challenge him however he wanted to cope with it was okay at 90 years old. Um, but it was, it was a real challenge for me. Thank God I had Mel because she was so close to my dad and she was really a comfort for him. And, uh, I think, I think my dad 
had the two people in his life at the right time. He had Mel and my sister and he leaned on them a lot. I remember and, what, yeah. like even pictures she would post of her just being with your dad and taking care of him. I was like, what an angel. He, he, he loved her so much. And my sister used to make fun of it, of, of my dad, because Mel would walk in. My dad was like, oh, I can't stand anymore. And Mel would walk in a room and he'd stand up. Oh, hi, Mel. <laughs> and Karen's Aww. like, oh, hi, Mel. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, you know who else you had at that time? Um, Bob, because when that happened with your brother, I remember you called him and he, and I, cause it was earlier in LA and like he and I were yeah. still in bed. I was yeah. sitting right next to him and he was just absolutely brokenhearted because obviously he'd known your brother for so long. And he stayed and, downstairs in that room when he did stand up in the early, early, early days, probably this is probably the early eighties. Uh, he went to my dad's house and he stayed at my oh dad's my house in that same room down there. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Cause I know it's, Here, you know, here's very, another thing yeah. that, that I want to say about this. Um, Bob was the first person to, um, you know, to, to call me. Cause I was just, I was just like that day is such a, a vivid blur at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you've been there where you're, you're numb, but you remember all of it. Yeah. And, um, Bob was the first person to, to call and leave me a voicemail and I keep people's voicemails. Um, and the episode you did of Full House Rewind, I'm playing that message to just let people know how special Bob was, that he, you know, left me this loving message. And I say to the audience, I hope, I hope you have a Bob Saget somewhere in your life, you know. Um, but it was, uh, you know, another one of those times when grief strikes and you got someone watching your back. It's pretty amazing to have a friend like that. But then, because it went your brother and then Bob and then your dad, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then obviously six like, other people yeah, peppered in between. It was, it was so bizarre. It was just such a, it was like I was in somebody else's shoes. I'm like, this can't be, this can't be my life right now. This, this just is too much. It's just too much because it was just one after another. And at, at a certain point, Mel didn't know how to console me. She was just like, I don't know what to say. This is just a lot. What was she doing up into a certain point that was helpful? And then what were, and not just speaking for Mel, but let's say in a situation like that, if you have a spouse who's trying to comfort you, like what was helpful? And then at what point were you just like, nothing, like this doesn't even help? Well, she knows me so well that she'll just know when to like just be. And what I mean by that is like, she may not have the words. She may not have the right thought to give to me to make me feel better, but she, I just know she's there and it's, she'll give me that, which is she'll just come and sit next to me or just hold my hand or just give me a hug or just, I just know she's there. And at a certain point, I think she knew that's all Dave needs is just to know that I'm here. And, um, that was enough for me. That was, that was, that was my comfort food Right. that she was there and so supportive because she hasn't really lost anybody yet. 
She um, has her grandparents and... All four grandparents? Uh, let's see. She has, <laughs> I think, she's... Well, she has three of her grandparents. Her her one gra- uh, grandfather was killed in a, a, a car accident suddenly. But she's got, you know, her three grandparents. That's amazing. And, yeah, and they're healthy and they hike and it's amazing. <laughs> wow. And, you know, she's seen what I've gone through yeah. and and I think it I think it scares her a little bit, but I'll be there for her. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a real gift to be able to give that to people when you can look them right in the eye during the darkest moment and say the right thing. You know, because my my family doesn't do that. My family kind of is one of those stick your head in the sand and it'll go away kind of families. Yeah. I remember when I first came home from California, I was out here. I was only 19 years old and I, I went back to Michigan. I was a regular at the comedy store and, you know, I was so charged up to go back. And I'd been living out here with just friends, you know, like hanging out with Bob and Gary and just friends, you know, and we would always say, love you. You know, and my family never said that. It was just kind of, you know, okay, it's it's understood, but not said. So I came home and I remember I was packing up all my stuff to move out here permanently. And I was telling my family, oh, I love you. And and then my brother told me, he said, yeah, dad said you've turned into a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? He goes, yeah, you're telling her. He goes, yeah, Dave tells everybody he loves him now. I don't know if he's smoking something or on something, but I, I was, uh, I, I don't know what's going on out there in California. You're like, I got it from Bob. <laughs> yeah. But it was just, you know, when, when you're away, I think you start to change. If you're not around your family, you gain objectivity, you gain a certain perspective, you start to appreciate like, oh, I really love my family because I haven't, this is the first time I'm really away from them. So I couldn't wait to go back home and like, I miss them. I really love my family. But my dad thought I was a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if if that's what telling people you love them is, then, then we're all weirdos then here. I'm a weirdo, yeah. Bob yeah. was the biggest because not only was he a big hugger, but I mean, he said, I love you to everybody like yeah. 5,000 times. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do that now. I just naturally do that if I... 
really truly love that person, I tell them. Yeah. Because I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow and I want them to know. Or if they are, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like when my dad was, when my dad, his last week, uh, and like I said, Mel was there every day at his bedside, just hanging with him and making sure that the nurses were giving him what he needed. And sometimes he wasn't all there. And, you know, we would kind of take shifts and I would, I would come and, and then, you know, it was, he, he didn't have much longer. And I, I said to Mel, I said, there's still some things I want to say to him. She goes, well, get over here. And he wasn't really conscious at that point. And I was driving there, bawling my eyes out, saying, I can't believe I'm going to say the last things to my dad. And so she was there sitting with my dad. And he, his eyes were closed. And he was still breathing on his own. And they were just making him comfortable. And he's lying there. And I went and I grabbed his hand. And there wasn't a whole lot going on at that point. It was a few days before he was going to pass. And so I started talking to him and I started telling funny stories and I started really telling him all the things that a, a lifetime accumulates that I, you say to a parent. And I thanked him and I remembered things and this and that. And I got in the middle of a story and all of a sudden he just squeezed my hand so tight. And I looked at Mel and she's crying because she sees it. I said, I know you're in there, dad. And it felt so, I, I felt such a release and it felt so lovely to be able to say those things to my dad. Because uh, I got to say them to my mom. And I just thought, you know, if my dad was really conscious to say it to him, it would be tough for him. It wouldn't be for me. But he would really struggle with how to accept that. And when he squeezed my hand so tight, after like not moving for a couple of days, I just thought he's still in there and he hears this and I get to take that with me. You're so lucky that you got to do that with both your parents. Yes. And my mom, not everybody has that. Yeah. My mom uh, was like the energizer bunny. She was four foot 11. Uh, she loved golf and tequila and she was the <laughs> life of the party and she was super creative, super talented. Uh, she was an interior designer, um, started her own company, bought two homes on her own when she was a single mom. So like the last week of her life, she also had cancer. Cancer runs uh, rampant with w women in my family. And so uh, she was very much there very alert and alive. And, you know, we were talking about Dave, I want you to handle all my affairs and I want you to be executor and, you know, uh, of my trust and my will and this and that. So we were just talking about that. And I was writing down all of her wishes, you know, and she was laying in bed and, uh, I, I was typing everything on my laptop and I, I just put it down and she looked so beautiful. She just, I was like, wow, my mom's really pretty. And I told her that. And I said, mom, you look beautiful. And I want you to know. And I had the conversation with her. And we laughed and we cried. And then she just lost it. And um, she said, I just love you kids so much. And it was, but it was, for me, I get to carry that forever now. Where I get to say, wow, I feel no matter what happens, I got to say that to my parents and thank them and tell them how much they meant to me. So it's tough. 
saying those things, uh, especially if you grew up in a family like mine that didn't communicate and, <laughs> you know, uh, didn't really talk or discuss feelings. But being a weirdo from California, I was able to go back and be heartfully honest with them. Yeah, and how do you, because I'm trying to picture what that would be like to go into a situation thinking like, this is what I'm going to have to say. And if you go to the heavy place of mm -hmm. this is that conversation, yeah, then it makes it very, very real. Where sometimes if you're just like, no, everything's fine, Ma. I love you, Ma. And you don't really go there. I mean, it really is do or die right. at that point, you know? And I just thought, I don't want to look back ever and not say these things because they mean the world to me. And I want them to know that, you know, you are so much love in my soul and my being, and I'm who I am because of you. And I just thought, I don't want to not say that. I want them to know. and. uh my mom, it just broke her. It, I felt bad at a certain point because it just broke her. It just broke her down. And she just was uncontrollable sobbing, you know, of the reality of my son is giving me the, the talk. The, he's saying the things right. from the depths of his soul to me. And I just kind of gave my mom as much love as I possibly could summon up at that moment to tell her, like, you're so important and I'm always going to carry this, mom. Like, look, what an amazing gift you've given me that I get to remember my mom as being this, like, superhuman. So that's the moment you just go for it versus hold back to try to keep things light and more comfortable. You yeah, just, and, you just and, go and for every, it. Yeah, and Kelly, everybody's different. You know, mm -hmm. but that's the way I chose to do it. I will, and I didn't want to have any regrets. If you had to give, let's say, your best advice from everything you have gone through, especially, especially that, let's say, 2022 was not a good year for yeah, you. That was tough. It was really, really tough. To give some advice to other people taking from what you learned, what would you say? It's okay to feel like empty. It's okay. It's okay to feel like there's nowhere to turn. There's no solace in anything. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to feel like the tank is completely dry. It's okay to feel like, oh my gosh, what could be worse than this? You know, it's okay to feel all of that because at least it gives you a starting point to process your way through it. So it's okay to like, just feel like you are completely helpless. It's okay to feel like there's nothing anyone can say. There's nothing you can do. You just have to process that. You have to go to the depths of your soul to where it hurts. We as human beings, we will stay there in that hurt space for a while, but then there are things that you can look to that will pull you out of that. And when I talked about the well earlier, you can start filling that, that well back up with great memories and gravitate towards your support system because the people that you love will love you back. And you have that. And the person that you lost would really want that for you. 
They wouldn't want you to be suffering in pain and knowing that they caused you this grief and this darkness in your life. They, no one wants that for someone. Um, they want you to carry the memory of them that's, that was great through your love or your friendship. Um, that's what, that's what I would want. That's what you would want. I think that's what most people would want. It's like, no, when I'm gone, I want you to feel, you know, like, well, I think Bob would have wanted (laughs) us to be sad for a bit for sure. But we were, right, right, right. We were, and now we've filled the well back up to where we get to have conversations that are so lovely and filled with love. That to me will always be, you know, I'll say it again. That's the gift. Yeah. Yeah. But it's okay to feel all that stuff. Yeah. Um, because you got to start somewhere. And sometimes the bottom, <clears throat> unfortunately, is the place where you have to start from. Right. And sometimes people feel as though they have to be living up to it. They're like, oh, I'm not, I can't be that sad. I have to I be have to pushing be forward and yeah. I have to be strong. And- yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. It's okay right. to feel that too. You know, but there's those moments when you're by yourself and you don't have to be strong for anybody, it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel just awful to the depths of whatever awful is for someone. It's okay. We're all human. None of us um, wear capes. Well, some of us do. Uh, I was just walking down, you know, Melrose. Uh, I probably saw a bunch of capes. Well, saw a bunch of capes. Yeah, yeah, a couple of capes. I didn't see any superheroes, but I saw some capes. But, um... You know, we're just human beings and, and, um, we have, we have feelings and we have emotions and we have, you know, a psychological process and they're all hooked together. And so it's, it's just okay. It's okay to feel all those things, but by allowing yourself the freedom to feel all that stuff, you don't even realize it, but it becomes part of your healing process. I have one last question for you. Is there something you would say that when you were going through all of this loss, especially in a one-year period, were there things people did, friends, loved ones, whatever, that you're like, that's just not, that's just not helpful. Like, that's just not what I need right now. Uh, yeah, it's funny people who think I need a joke, <laughs> you know, or people who aren't funny who think mm-hmm. I need a joke. And it, I know what they're trying to do. They're right. trying to cheer me up. Uh, but sometimes it's like, hey, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting right now. It's okay. You know, you, but people don't want you to hurt. And I would assure people like, it's good. Like people, are you in pain? And like, are you okay? You must be in so much pain. I'm like, I am. I am. And it's probably also comforting for them to see you laughing because yeah. they all, they want to see you in your Dave state, which is, you know, like yeah. you're like, so if they feel that they can make you laugh, then it also is going to comfort them. It does. It does. That's exactly the psychology that happens. But sometimes I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be miserable for a couple of days. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to process this and it's not fun. I think it's important to be able to tell people things, you know, like my mom and my dad, uh, I had a friend who passed away during that dark period. And I hadn't seen him in years. And he was one of the funniest people I ever met. And um, he was just kind of a guy's guy. And he, he got sick. And he had moved to northern Michigan. And none of the guys had seen him in years. And we didn't know how sick he was. 
And so he was texting me. So I, I, um, I said, I'm going to drive up there. Do any of you guys want to go? And so one of his other best friends said, yeah, I'll drive up there with you. And so we're laughing and like, oh, here's what I'm going to tell him when we get up there. Cause he was texting me. And so we go and he's living in a, um, state run facility. We get there and the head nurse says, he's been talking about this for two weeks that you guys were coming up here. He's just every day. I can't wait till those guys get here. They're my buds and they're so funny. And we played hockey and golf together and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm expecting to like turn the corner and go in his room and he's going to be sitting there. Well, we turn the corner, we go into the room and he's balled up wearing a diaper with a morphine drip. And he's like half there. And I looked at my other friend and I, I said, Oh my Wow. You know, so I went over and I talked to my friend and I go, are you okay? And his eyes open and he kind of made a little joke and he said, I got to take a leak. Can you help me? And so I, okay, like what is going on here? So I helped him to the bathroom and then, um, he sat back down on the bed and he was kind of coming in and out and in and out. And then we stayed there for about an hour and we went back to the, um, nurse. And I said, you know, uh, who is on his list of people to call? She goes, you're the first people who's visited him in five years. <gasps> and our hearts <sighs> sank and like no family. She's like, no. And that's why he was so excited. You guys were coming. Oh, so we went back to his room realizing, oh my gosh. And I said, put our numbers on that list, you know, for people to call, we'll take care of whatever. So we go back and by then, you know, he was really out of it. And so I kissed him goodbye and he said, uh, well, that's going to do it for me all of a sudden, just out of nowhere. And he laid down, I go, do you just want to lay down? He goes, yeah. So we kind of tucked him in his bed and he said, bye. And we're like, okay, hey, great seeing you. We get in our car, we're driving back 15 minutes later, the head nurse calls and she said, I just want you to know David passed away. She said, he's been waiting for you guys so that he could pass away. And I just thought we were both crushed. I I pulled the car over and we just sat there crying, just going, oh my gosh, what, you know. That's insane. That's crazy. What a crazy thing that we just lived through. And then we just talked and I said, I'm so happy we did this. Like we told him we loved him. We were the last people that he saw. Um, you know, that is the best thing we could have done for him at the end of his life was to say, we're here for you. And we made the journey to come and see you just to tell you that we love you. So had I not done that, if I, knowing what you know now, imagine that, right. Yeah. Um, I would just thought, oh, he died. Well, you know, but I wouldn't have known all of that other stuff. I was just like, you know, it took me one day to make the effort. I'm not preaching or telling people what to do, but I'm so glad that I made that effort that day to go and see a friend. It's those little life choices where you just think, I'm going to go with my gut on this and go and I'm going to go visit this guy because he needs a friend right now. Maybe I can help him in some way, but, uh, I think I would have really regretted 
not doing that. That would have kind of always tapped me on the shoulder and go, you should have gone. Well, especially knowing how it ended up, what the reality was. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I just wanted to share that because we're talking about, you know, grief and, and, you know, the comforts, not only that you give to other people, sometimes you need to get that comfort for yourself too. Yeah. It's okay to be selfish with, these are my feelings and I get to uh, express them the way I want. So I'm going to be a little selfish with, okay, I feel terrible right now. I'm processing this, but, but I think that's okay too. I think it's okay to, to be a little, I don't even think it's, you're being selfish at that point. I think you're being introspective. I think you're being, you're kind of taking care of yourself and letting yourself just be. And that's something that Bob always said too. He's like, you got to take care of yourself. You got to do what's best for you too. That's very true. And I'm just very grateful for you for sharing all of this today. And especially that last story that I did not know that is just unbelievable. So I love you, Dave. I love you too, Kelly. And thank you so much. So I don't much get to for talk about here. this stuff very often. I'm usually I know. like, hey, everybody. <laughs> well, well, especially with what you're doing now with Full House Rewind, like, you know, it's a very different type of uh, energy that you have on that show versus here. But this stuff is important. This yes. is important to talk about this stuff. You know, it becomes a catharsis, not just for you and I sitting here, you know, sharing this stuff, but for those watching and listening. It's okay to have that catharsis, no matter how you go about it. There's never a right way or a wrong way, but there's your way. And, and, and I think that that you have to hold on to that because it's very important. Yeah. Well, I'm very appreciative that you took the time, shared all this and hopefully it was, well, there's a lot more for you, (laughs) but hopefully it was cathartic for you and it it definitely was for me. And, you know, I'm just so grateful for you and for being or for me for the last, I mean, more than just the last two years, but especially the last two years. And I know that you're always there if I need you and you and Mel. And you have to come and visit us. You have to come to. Well, I told you next month. You're coming to Michigan and you're going to come over to our house. And um, we're. I can't wait. We're going to be very happy when you, when you come over. I can't wait. Thank you, Dave. Love you. Thanks, Kelly. Love you too. Today in the studio, Dave and I enjoyed a delicious slice of pizza. I'm not going to teach you how to make pizza here, but thanks for listening anyway. Comfort Food is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Acast. Our executive producers are Fanny Baudry, Cassie Berman, Leah Sutherland, and yours truly, Kelly Rizzo. Our audio producer is Chiara Nonni. Special thanks to Camila Goldenberg and Riley Oville rink for production assistance. Our audio engineer is Matthew Blocka. Our editor is Nick Carissimi. This podcast is hosted by me, Kelly Rizzo. If you like the show, please rate us five stars and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.